Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Only two cases this week, but they're both really interesting, so we're going to take deep dives into both of them. I myself had a bit of a crazy week, flying to and from Miami for a bond hearing because immigration detention has never stopped during the pandemic. And in this spirit, the Ninth Circuit upheld an injunction this week issued in the ever-active Flores litigation out of the Central District of California that, quote, precludes the Department of Homeland Security from detaining certain minors in hotels for more than a few days in the process of expelling them from the United States, end quote. What a sentence, and how unfortunate that an injunction is needed to prevent it. But it is. Now, on to the first case. First this week is Matter of Voss, published by the Board of Immigration Appeals. And in a pretty extraordinary decision, the BIA has reversed an IJ's removal order and terminated removal proceedings. The case involves the sort of rationale and wonky immigration analysis that Ira Kurzban and certain judicial mentors of mine simply love. Here's what's up. Miss Voss became a lawful permanent resident, or LPR, in 1988, but never naturalized to U.S. citizenship. In 2013, she was convicted of various drug offenses, which made her removable under Section 237 of the INA, and also made her inadmissible under INA Section 212A2AIII for being a non-citizen convicted of violating a law relating to a controlled substance. But, and this is very important, DHS did not charge Ms. Voss as removable under INA Section 237A2BI for having been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance. That's a bit confusing, I know, so let me take a step back. The INA, or immigration laws, are generally split into two sections that make a non-citizen removable, Section 237 and Section 212. 
For non-citizens who have been admitted into the United States, either as LPRs or non-immigrants, or who have already adjusted to LPR status inside the United States, those non-citizens can only be removed under Section 237. And the charges at 237 are, you know, think aggravated felonies, convictions for two or more CIMTs, those kinds of charges. But for non-citizens who have come to the United States unlawfully, Section 212 applies. Section 212 also applies if the non-citizen is outside the U.S. trying to come in through consular processing with the Department of State. And Section 212 also applies, and this is important here, if the non-citizen is in the United States already and is trying to adjust to LPR status, or is applying for other forms of immigration relief. In such circumstances, the immigration statutes make clear that a non-citizen is ineligible to adjust to LPR status or to obtain other forms of immigration relief, such as cancellation removal, if the non-citizen is inadmissible under any portion or a sub-portion of Section 212, depending on the immigration relief. So back to Ms. Voss, and I'll repeat it again in light of that legal background. She was a lawful permanent resident, so DHS must have alleged that she was removable under some provision of Section 237. I'm not sure which provision DHS alleged because this BIA decision does not say. But we know that DHS did not charge Ms. Voss as removable under Section 237A2BI for having been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance. DHS did, however, allege that she was inadmissible under Section 212A2AIII for having been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance. And the IJ appears to have agreed that Ms. Voss was also inadmissible under this provision. This is important because this provision of inadmissibility, 212A2AIII, bars Ms. Voss from certain forms of immigration relief but it does not bar her from receiving cancellation of removal for LPRs under Section 240AA. Ms. Voss applied for LPR cancellation and received it from the immigration judge in 2014, thereby returning her to LPR status. Just as an aside for newer practitioners taking notes, LPR cancellation under Section 240AA is different from non-LPR cancellation under 240AB. Because, among other differences, including the statute and the fact that LPR cancellation requires that the applicant first be an LPR, LPR cancellation is much easier to obtain because it does not require a showing of hardship to a U.S. citizen or LPR family member. Okay, so Ms. Voss navigates the immigration law maze that I just explained. But then in 2019, Ms. Voss was convicted of Louisiana bank fraud. Not great, Ms. Voss. DHS alleged that her new conviction made her removable under Section 237 because now she had been convicted of more than one CIMT, and additionally, her Louisiana bank fraud conviction was an aggravated felony. But the immigration judge disagreed and held that the bank fraud conviction was neither a CIMT nor an aggravated felony that made her removable. So, DHS alleged for the first time that Ms. Voss's 2013 drug conviction now made her removable under INA Section 237A2BI because it qualified as a conviction for having violated a law relating to a controlled substance. Honestly, DHS probably should have made this allegation in the first removal proceedings in 2014. In this decision, 
the BIA held that because DHS did not allege that Miss Voss was removable under INA Section 237A2BI in the first removal proceedings in 2014, DHS cannot make the allegation in subsequent removal proceedings. Quote, if a criminal conviction was charged as a ground of removability or was known to the immigration judge at the time cancellation of removal was granted, that conviction cannot serve as the sole factual predicate for a charge of removability in subsequent removal proceedings, end quote. And I'll say it right now, I see no reason why this holding wouldn't also extend to non-LPR cancellation under INA Section 240AB, or even other forms of relief. But we'll see. So, for this reason, the BIA held that Ms. Voss's, quote, 2013 conviction for an offense relating to a controlled substance for which she was granted cancellation of removal in 2014 cannot serve as the sole basis for the current charge of removability, end quote. The BIA therefore terminated removal proceedings, returning Ms. Voss to LPR status. Great decision for immigration law, and it's a bit complicated, I know. Here's a bit more. As many listeners know, I've sometimes been harsh on the BIA, from the safety of my microphone, and have noted that like 90% of their decisions in the last three and a half years have been adverse to non-citizens. This decision, however, is pretty good to non-citizens. I see you, BIA. Moving on, here's an interesting quote. Quote, Absent a statute or case law to the contrary, the jurisprudence regarding Section 212C relief generally applies with equal force to cancellation of removal, end quote. Now, INA Section 212C is a form of relief that hasn't existed for over 20 years and has been the subject of lots of case law, including at least two Supreme Court decisions. It's a very favorable form of relief to non-citizens, and so it's good to know that the BIA believes all of the case law addressing 212C relief applicable, when relevant, to cancellation of removal. So start digging into those 212C cases, practitioners, just as the BIA did in this case, relying largely on the 1956 212C decision, Matter of GA, to support its rationale in this decision. And finally, practitioners, a word of warning before the celebration. Remember that Miss Voss and other non-citizens' convictions are not and never expunged just because they receive immigration relief. So, for example, assuming her drug conviction is a CIMT, if she gets convicted of another CIMT in the future, Miss Voss can likely be deemed removable under Section 237 as an LPR who has been convicted of two or more CIMTs because under those facts, her 2013 conviction would not be the, quote, sole basis, end quote, for her removability. And that is Matter of Voss. Next is Jimenez Aguilar v. Barr, published by the Seventh Circuit on October 6, 2020. This is a case about a not-so-often-cited-to regulation and an immigration judge's duty to warn about potential eligibility for asylum and torture convention protection. Mr. Jimenez Aguilar came to the United States from Honduras without authorization as a child many years ago. He now has a wife and U.S. citizen children and, when placed in removal proceedings, applied for cancellation of removal for non-permanent residents under INA Section 240A-B an immigration judge denied the relief. 
Before the BIA, Mr. Jimenez Aguilar claimed that his prior attorney committed ineffective assistance of counsel by discouraging him from additionally bringing an asylum claim in immigration court and that the IJ had violated the regulations in failing to advise Mr. Jimenez Aguilar of his potential asylum eligibility. The BIA rejected these claims, but the Seventh Circuit reversed, and here's why. One of the immigration regulations, 8 CFR section 1240.11 C1, requires that immigration judges inform non-citizens of their eligibility to apply for asylum and torture protection when, quote, an alien expresses fear of persecution or harm upon return, end quote. Here, Mr. Jimenez Aguilar expressed a fear of harm from gangs in Honduras, but the IJ didn't advise him of his potential eligibility for asylum or torture protection. The BIA believed that the regulatory requirement was irrelevant in this case because Mr. Jimenez Aguilar was represented by counsel and had, quote, a reasonable opportunity, end quote, to apply for asylum but the Seventh Circuit said no. The regulation expressly requires that an IJ advise under certain circumstances, and so if those circumstances are met, an IJ must advise. Okay, fine. Now the case gets interesting. According to the Seventh Circuit, this doesn't end the inquiry, because remember, the regulatory obligation only attaches once a non-citizen expresses a fear of persecution or harm. Here, Mr. Jimenez Aguilar expressed a fear of harm, but as the Seventh Circuit noted, the regulation can't cover all harms, like, say, a fear of natural disasters, because that wouldn't make any sense. So the Seventh Circuit requested briefing on what type of harms cut it under the regulations to then trigger the requirement for an IJ to provide the asylum warnings. Following briefing, the Seventh Circuit held that, quote, harm for the purposes of the regulation must mean the sort of physical or mental distress that could render one eligible for asylum or withholding of removal, or that could support asylum or torture protection if elaborated in response to a warning, end quote. Emphasis in the original. The Seventh Circuit expressly, quote, rejected the government's contention that an alien's eligibility must be apparent in order to trigger the IJ's duty to notify, end quote. And this standard for the regulation and this definition of harm aligns with decisions out of the Ninth and Fifth Circuits. So turning back to this case, the Seventh Circuit held that Mr. Jimenez Aguilar's fear of gang violence in Honduras on account of his relationship to his mother triggered the immigration judge's duty to inform Mr. Jimenez Aguilar about the possibility of applying for asylum and torture convention protection. But a word of warning. Be specific with your fears, practitioners, because the Seventh Circuit stated that if Mr. Jimenez Aguilar had merely expressed a fear of, quote, generalized violence, end quote, he would not have triggered the regulatory warning requirement. So, Mr. Jimenez Aguilar won his petition and will now likely have the opportunity to apply for further relief and protection before an immigration judge. So congratulations, Mr. Jimenez Aguilar. Here's a bit on prejudice and some nerdy administrative law observations. So recall that Mr. Jimenez Aguilar brought ineffective assistance of counsel claims and regulatory violation claims before the BIA. To succeed on both, a showing that the non-citizen suffered prejudice is usually required. 
Here, in relation to the regulatory violation, the Seventh Circuit held that the fact that Mr. Jimenez Aguilar, quote, asserts that he was unaware that he might be eligible for asylum or withholding of removal is enough to show that the immigration judge's error prejudiced him, end quote. The Seventh Circuit's holding here that prejudice can be shown where an immigration judge makes an omission or an error that thereby makes the non-citizen unaware of immigration options seems to me to be a favorable prejudice standard and would not appear limited merely to regulatory violations by IJs. So use this prejudice standard in your ineffective assistance of counsel briefs, practitioners. Turning to administrative law. As the Seventh Circuit notes, in its supplemental briefing, Oil did not argue that the Seventh Circuit must defer to the BIA's definition of the word harm, as used in the regulation. To the Seventh Circuit, this means that, quote, the board has never considered the meaning of the word harm, end quote. So practitioners, follow your circuit law on the definition of the word harm, and don't let Oil or DHS argue otherwise if this issue comes up in the future. Continuing down this rabbit hole, if the word harm was an ambiguous term under the Immigration and Nationality Act or the statute, Chevron deference would apply, which would mean that in the future, if the BIA interpreted the word harm differently, the Seventh Circuit and other circuits may still have to defer to the BIA's new interpretation on account of the Supreme Court's Brand X decision about a decade ago. And admittedly, the Seventh Circuit discusses Chevron deference in this case. But I think that might be an error. This is, after all, an ambiguity in the regulations, which means that R and Kaiser deference applies, not Chevron deference. And R Kaiser deference is not only much weaker than Chevron deference, but I'm not sure whether Brand X would allow the BIA to trump a circuit interpretation of a regulation. Put another way, I'm not sure if Brand X allows the BIA to trump a circuit interpretation of an ambiguous statute and an ambiguous regulation, or if Brand X only allows the BIA to trump a circuit interpretation of an ambiguous statute. More research necessary, though, if the issue ever arises. Finally, I think it's worth noting that a certain Judge Barrett was on the panel that heard oral argument, but did not participate in this decision. I wonder why. And that is Jimenez Aguilar v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. 
I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.